Hi, Parcast listeners. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome back to Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies. For this event, Parcast is investigating the shadowy corners where crime and the environment meet and telling those stories. Because climate change affects all parts of society, including crimes and conspiracies. If you're enjoying our Earth Day episodes and would like to learn more or take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. Picture a typical evening. You've had a long day at work and finally you get to relax. Since you're not in the mood to cook dinner, you open a delivery app and review your options. Tonight, you're in the mood for fish, so you navigate to the place with a really good salmon and brown rice, put it in your cart, hit submit, and get an error message. This item isn't available. Well, if you can't order salmon, you can get sushi. You go to a different restaurant, select a couple of rolls, plus a side of edamame, of course, and confirm the order. Only to get the same error. The same thing happens when you try to buy fish and chips at the local pub or shrimp scampi at the Italian joint, clam chowder, mahi-mahi tacos, a tuna salad sandwich, ceviche. You settle on a fried chicken basket and your order finally goes through. You realize why when you open your news app. Right at the top of the feed, it explains there was another oil spill today. The latest after decades of aquatic disasters all over the world. The FDA is warning that oceanic pollution is too high. Fish will be dangerous to consume for the foreseeable future. Every local restaurant has removed all their seafood dishes out of caution. And fish are just one resource we get from our oceans. If governments and corporations don't do a better job of protecting the waters soon, meal planning will be the least of our problems. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we delve into one of the Earth's least explored regions, the oceans. They're also one of the areas that's the most at risk. That's easy to forget, even when they're in your backyard. I live in Southern California, and just two years ago, there was a major oil spill here. But even that accident seems minor compared to today's topic. We're covering the Deepwater Horizon, the worst accidental oil spill in all of history. But even after a decade, there are still a lot of unanswered questions about the disaster, including where did all the oil go? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. The evening of April 20th, 2010 began quietly enough. An oil rig called the Deepwater Horizon floated in the Gulf of Mexico. For months, its crew had been drilling a new well in a region dubbed the Macondo Prospect. Deepwater was chartered by BP, a company formerly known as British Petroleum. It's a multi-billion dollar business that operates in over 70 countries. Odds are, if you've driven through parts of the U.S. and Mexico, you've probably passed by their gas stations. They're the ones with the logo that looks like a green and yellow sunburst or a flower. But most of the crew on Deepwater weren't BP employees. The task of drilling had been subcontracted out to Halliburton, another oil company. But even with the extra support, they were still behind schedule. But finally, on April 20th, the crew was almost done. Early that morning, the workers were putting the last touches on the pipe that ran directly from the well. They encased it with concrete, then spent hours ensuring everything was set up properly. They couldn't afford to be sloppy because they were working on game-changing technology. This was the deepest offshore well the world had ever seen. They were drilling for oil located two miles beneath the water's surface. Needless to say, there were plenty of challenges. So, though the technicians were in a hurry to get back on schedule, they had to be careful. They seemed to go above and beyond with safety procedures, and it seemed to pay off. They ran multiple tests on the well's stability, and according to the on-site BP representative, every result was acceptable. The Macondo well appeared to be in perfect shape. Now, if that was true, the rig still wasn't harmless. Even when they're operating exactly right, wells like these release toxic pollution into the air. And the Macondo structure wasn't running exactly how it was supposed to. Because remember, the project was behind schedule. So even if the technicians were doing their due diligence, behind the scenes, BP was scrambling to meet deadlines. Their goals and instructions kept changing. Mistakes were being made. The final test was supposed to indicate if the rig was strong enough to handle the pressure of such extreme depths. The BP representative insisted the results were acceptable. But in reality, they weren't even close. 
It was only after repeating the test again that they were satisfied with the results. For now. Shortly before 9 p.m., uncontrollable waves of oil and gas began surging upward through the pipe. It flowed right past the many safety mechanisms that were supposed to prevent this kind of backflow until it broke the water's surface. At 9.40, the oil bubbled up around the drilling platform. It quickly spread across the deep water's decks. Meanwhile, a haze of highly explosive gas condensed above the ship. There was machinery in place that should have prevented the oil and gas from gushing up the pipe, but it failed. So the crew was left to grapple with a situation they hadn't been trained for. They only had minutes to identify what was going on and stop the gushing. It wasn't nearly enough time, because somewhere on the rig, a spark ignited. The Deepwater Horizon burst into flames, setting off a series of explosions. The fiery inferno was visible for miles. For many crew members, this was when they first realized something was wrong. No shipwide alarms had sounded, no one had communicated the emergency situation. Even workers who were on duty at other posts had no idea of the danger until fire ripped through the walls and corridors. To make matters worse, gas and oil were still flowing uncontrollably from the Macondo well. So the fire kept raging. The survivors of the blast piled into lifeboats and launched out to sea. Well, most of them did. Some were left on board. They didn't make it to the boats in time. The stragglers had to inflate a life raft to escape, and they barely made it in the nick of time. By 4 a.m., more than half of the crew members had been rescued. But after almost seven hours, the rig was still burning. It was so bright, cameras couldn't capture the details. The flames obscured everything. Three hours later, everyone had been saved, except for 11 people. 11 people who would never be rescued because they perished in the disaster. One of them was Dale Burkeen. He was operating a crane near the drilling equipment when the crude began bubbling up. Once everything erupted into flames, he didn't just leave his post. He ensured his machinery was properly docked. Perhaps he thought he was eliminating another potential danger for his crew members. Unfortunately, those seconds cost him. When Dale finally tried to evacuate, flames swept over him. Moments later, another blast slammed him to the ground. Later on during the evacuation, a colleague came across Dale's body. They could tell right away, he was dead. For many of the other victims, we don't know their cause of death. Their co-workers didn't see them pass away, and in some cases, their bodies are still missing. The rescue teams tried everything they could, but searching the area was incredibly dangerous. The rig burned for days. Firefighters doused the blaze with seawater, but couldn't put it out. Ultimately, the ship sank on the morning of Earth Day, April 22nd. Fortunately, first responders were able to douse the flames. The bad news was the oil was spreading. The fire had actually been doing some good. It had been burning the fuel from the Macondo Prospect before it could escape. But now, there was nothing containing the spill. 
Even worse, as the rig went down, it burst a pipe. Oil began spewing out and spreading through the ocean. As we mentioned before, the Macondo well was the first of its kind, deeper than any other, which meant scientists had never stopped a leak like this one before. But just sealing it would only create more problems. If the oil couldn't gurgle up, the underground pressure would build and could cause another subsurface blowout. Think of it like trying to block a stream of water blasting out of a hose. When you put your hand over the spout, it keeps running. But now, instead of spraying out in one directed stream, the water spurts in different directions to get around your fingers. That's what the BP and Halliburton employees were afraid of. If they capped the Macondo well without slowing the flood of oil, all the crude would just ooze out somewhere else. They'd end up with multiple oil leaks instead of one big one. They couldn't just band-aid the situation. They needed an actual solution. It took weeks for BP to implement a procedure they called a cofferdam effort. Basically, three times between May 6th and 8th, they lowered a giant metal balloon-like cap onto the well. If the oil went into its dome, it couldn't spread through the water. But each time their efforts failed. On one occasion, the frigid deep-sea waters froze methane ice inside the balloon, making it float back toward the surface. First responders finally gave up on May 8th. 19 days later, they tried a new tactic they called Top Kill. The workers poured heavy drilling mud down the well. They hoped the pressure of the descending sludge would be greater than the pressure of the crude rising from below. That way, the thick, heavy sediment would keep the crude down. But remember earlier when we mentioned how the Deepwater Horizon took a lot of readings as they finished the well? Well, they misinterpreted many of the results. Their findings told them the pit was gushing 5,000 barrels of oil each day. In reality, this was a huge underestimate. So the mud they poured down the hole wasn't heavy or dense enough. By May 26th, BP wasn't just dumping mud down the hole. They were throwing in golf balls, rubber balls, anything they could think of to jam up the oil's flow. This didn't work either. Now we don't have enough time to cover every attempt to block the wells. BP reports they made 10 tries total. We'll jump ahead to a strategy called the capping stack method, which BP attempted on July 12th. It involved a device similar to the one that failed the day of the spill, but they placed this one on top of the busted machinery. First, they put a kind of cap on the well, then monitored pressure levels closely. If the ground showed any signs of an impending subsurface blowout, they'd remove the lid immediately. They waited and watched. And when it seemed like the capping stack was working, they shut off the flow of oil. When researchers took readings of the pressure inside the well, they found it was high, but not as high as it could have been. Even though they'd stopped the flow, it wasn't in danger of a subsurface blowout. The cap could stay. These results were a mixed blessing. It didn't look like a blowout was likely. But that was because there wasn't as much crude left. After all, it'd been two and a half months since the spill began. 
the pressure was low because so much oil had already leaked out. To help ensure more wouldn't escape, BP employees dug new bores in the ground. Not to open new wells, but to intersect with the original Macondo hole. They poured heavy mud down these chutes, helping seal the breach. By September 19, 2010, a U.S. Coast Guard admiral announced the project was done and the well was sealed. It took 87 days, and in that time, millions of barrels of oil had contaminated the ocean. So while the flow had stopped, the damage had only begun. Coming up, the devastation goes deeper than we realize. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On July 12, 2010, BP finally stopped the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. It took 87 days, which meant there was now nearly three months' worth of pollution in the Gulf of Mexico. The cleanup was a massive undertaking. Roughly 55,000 people helped the effort and suffered for it. You see, oil isn't only dangerous to fish and birds. It can cause cancer, brain damage, and cardiovascular problems in people, too. In large quantities, it's not even safe to touch. And then there's the stress. Studies show the workers who responded to the Deepwater disaster developed a variety of mental health conditions afterward. Plus, these workers faced the same challenges as anyone with an outdoor labor-intensive job. Heat exhaustion, air pollution, and insect bites made some sick. But the issues they developed didn't just go away. Even after seven years, some workers were still suffering from symptoms. These ranged from rashes to migraines to cognitive impairments. One study found more than half of the cleanup workers experienced some kind of cardiac issue afterward. Lab tests even showed that the composition of their blood was altered. Eleven years after the disaster in 2021, some workers had died of their cardiac problems. Others were still reporting they had trouble breathing. More than one person went blind. But some afflicted people didn't even work directly on the response teams. According to reporting by Linda Marsa of Newsweek, a woman developed a blood disorder after the spill. She hadn't worked in the Gulf, but her husband did. It's believed her illness stemmed just from handling his oil-soaked laundry. Ultimately, it's hard to say how long these symptoms will last or how much more severe they'll become. Because the truth is, we don't know much about the long-term effects of this kind of exposure. Keep that in mind, that we don't know. It's going to come up a lot in this episode. It likely didn't help that a lot of people in the region were anxious, not only about the environmental disaster, but about their finances. Fishers couldn't work. 
Tourism declined, impacting everyone from hoteliers to tour guides. All in all, the Gulf Coast lost 22,000 jobs and billions in revenue. Communities of color were hit especially hard. Many black fishers were still struggling after Hurricane Katrina. This new disaster exacerbated those challenges. Plus, several of the landfills where BP dumped their waste were near POC neighborhoods. Even people who weren't impacted directly suffered from stress-related health problems. And that's all before we get into the environmental devastation. Marine creatures were engulfed in the spreading oil. This impeded their ability to swim and fly. An estimated 14,000 turtles died as a direct result of the disaster. Sludge blanketed the reefs, severely injuring corals that were centuries old. It's impossible to estimate how long it will take them to recover. And the disaster didn't just impact marine life. Oil interferes with birds' ability to keep cool in the summer and warm in the winter. If it gets on their feathers, it can keep them from flying or diving for prey. At a June 2010 government hearing, one expert warned that birds were especially vulnerable for these reasons. And she was right to raise the alarm. Because of the spill, an estimated 800,000 birds died. 800,000. Those are just the ones we can count. We don't know how the oil spill might have prevented future generations from nesting, or how it impacted migration routes. Dolphins were among the hardest-hit animals. Immediately after Deepwater Horizon, about 1,000 bottlenose dolphins died of oil poisoning, and those that survived often got sick at abnormally high rates. Perhaps more alarmingly, their birth rates have plummeted. As of 2020, only one in five bottleneck pregnancies in the Gulf result in a successful live birth. For comparison, elsewhere, the rate is a little over four out of five. And they weren't the only species affected. Pantropical spotted dolphins were once plentiful in the Gulf. It used to be almost impossible for researchers to survey the water without seeing them. Caitlin Frazier cataloged marine creatures that lived in the deepest part of the ocean using listening devices. She recorded the sounds of the depths and tried to identify what species she heard and how frequently. Frazier and her colleagues used to refer to pantropical spotted dolphins as rats. The waters were swarming with them, and the recording equipment often picked up their chirps and squeaks. But years passed, and something alarming happened. The pantropical spotted dolphins didn't show up as often. Frazier and her team can't say exactly what happened because they're only listening to the audio from one part of the Gulf. They don't have the means to track dolphins all over the world or test water samples along their migration route or ask the animals what's up. It's that same refrain again. There's so much we don't know. But Frazier's colleagues could make some educated guesses. The population decline came after the Deepwater Horizon disaster, so it's not hard to connect the dots. Part of the decline of birds, dolphins, and other animals is due to contact with the spill. But animals didn't have to have direct exposure to be affected. 
they could get sick from eating a smaller creature that did. And contaminated fish would have made easy prey. Oil exposure slowed them down and weakened their eyesight. In some cases, it impeded their brain function and seemed to make them worse at recognizing risk. A researcher named Stephen Morosky gave an interview to ABC a decade after the spill. He said his team had been surveying fish, and even in 2021, they had yet to find a single specimen from the Gulf that wasn't contaminated with oil. A full 10 years after the leak. Now we've all heard about the dangers of mercury in fish, and mercury and other poisonous compounds like arsenic and lead are all present in oil. So fish that have been exposed to enough pollution can be poisonous. To make matters worse, certain chemicals that were used in the spill to break down the oil contained carcinogens. We opened this episode by describing a nightmare scenario where all seafood everywhere is deemed unsafe to eat. That wasn't the case after the Deepwater Horizon accident. Officials only restricted fishing and harvesting in parts of the Gulf. This meant the U.S. missed out on about 18% of its usual seafood haul. But other fisheries were still in operation. Still, this was a big deal. It was the second time ever that an American fishery had to be closed following a spill. Which raised valid questions about when it would be safe to resume operations. In 2011, Environ Health Prospect published a study on the concentrations of oil in the Gulf after the Deepwater Horizon incident. The author's conclusion was a recommendation for more testing because they just don't know enough to say how dangerous these pollutants are. With time, FDA officials found the level of contaminants in the Gulf were low. Low enough that you could eat a whopping 63 pounds of shrimp every day for five years without ingesting a dangerous amount of oil. But that assumes the chemical analyses were airtight. Regulatory agencies don't have the time or resources to test every single fish, shrimp, mussel, or crab that may have been exposed to oil. In some cases, they didn't even do a chemical analysis. They just sniffed a catch to see if it smelled weird. So we wouldn't blame consumers for having some hesitation. Especially because the Deepwater Horizon disaster wasn't an isolated incident. Spills have happened since. And if creatures are exposed to oil repeatedly, it can build up over time. Each time there's an accident, it can take more than a decade for the crude to break down. Imagine if we had multiple major disasters in different parts of the ocean during the same decade. We might have to severely restrict our consumption. In time, we may even have to re-evaluate the safety of fish and crustaceans everywhere. And that's just because of oil spills. We haven't even touched on other problems like plastic, boat exhaust, or farm runoff. In other words, we're regularly pumping pollutants into the water we rely on to survive. Who knows how close we're teetering on the brink of disaster. Hopefully, we don't have to find out. Because there are steps we can take now to save the Gulf and protect ourselves from oil spills. And some are already underway. Coming up... 
How we can clean up the oceans. Now, back to the story. It's been over a decade since the Deepwater Horizon disaster, and we're still dealing with the fallout. Animals have died. Our food chain may be poisoned. People in the Gulf have suffered from physical and mental health problems. But ultimately, we just don't know all of the impacts of the explosion or how long they'll persist. In all of the Earth's history, we've never seen an oil spill like this before. Which means we can't say with any amount of confidence how the next several decades will play out. Maybe with time, a new generation of dolphins, whales, coral, and birds will be born. Their young could be healthier and hardier than those who are exposed to the oil. Or maybe not. Issues related to the pollution could persist in ways we can't anticipate. After all, we don't even know where all the oil went. Efforts to clean it up began the same day the rig sank. Responders managed to recover 16 to 17 percent of the oil, meaning they captured it, presumably for future refinement and use. Another 2 to 4 percent was skimmed, meaning vessels were able to scoop it right off the Earth's surface. They also sprayed chemicals called dispersants to help the crude break down. Then they let oil-eating bacteria and sunlight finish the work. Sort of like how you can use dishwashing soap to break up a sticky patch of grease on your favorite frying pan. Between these natural and artificial processes, 22 to 33 percent of the spill was broken down, and another 5 to 6 percent was incinerated. Unfortunately, some of the oil couldn't be captured or broken down, but it could be tracked. Scientists estimate 3 to 5 percent of it sank to the ocean floor. Another very small percentage was carried away by deep-sea currents. And some crude made it to shore. About 200 miles worth of coastlands were considered heavily oiled, while another 800 miles or so was impacted to some lesser degree. Some of that fluid got buried under mud, meaning sunlight and bacteria couldn't break it down. But each time a flood or storm stirred up the sediment, the chemicals would be released to damage the local environment again. We know you probably didn't have a calculator handy as we covered all that. So we did the math for you. More than 75% of the oil broke down, was cleaned up, or was swept through the ocean. Which means up to 25% is unaccounted for. And if we don't know where it went, we can't stop it from causing more harm. We don't really understand how oil interacts with the ocean long-term, even on a chemical level. But we're trying to find out. A research paper from August 2022, written by Edward B. Overton and his colleagues, detailed how oil has compositionally changed in the past decade. Among other things, they found oil split up from big globs into small droplets thanks to the use of dispersants. That's how they're supposed to work. Dissolving the oil into tiny drops makes it easier for bacteria to eat them. But this also increases the odds that fish, marine mammals, and other animals will too, even if they'd know to stay away from larger patches. But in either form, petroleum will likely remain in the water for a very long time. 
Who knows what other delightful discoveries we'll make while it lingers. If there's any upside to the disaster, it's that it's created an opportunity for scientists to learn about the long-term impacts of wide-scale crude exposure. But as far as silver linings go, this one is thin and faint. In an ideal world, we'd never need to ask questions about oil spills. In fact, deep water is the only reason we have funding for these studies. When the oil carrier ignited in April 2010, the state of Louisiana held BP responsible for the catastrophe. The following year, the corporate behemoth went to court. They'd been charged with violating many laws, from the Clean Water Act to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And they weren't only being held responsible for the spill itself. They'd made some serious missteps in its lead-up. Remember earlier when we said the Deepwater Horizons crew may have cut corners to keep the project on schedule? Well, that was only half the story. In reality, for months prior to the April eruption, their tests had generated concerning results. But when the crew relayed their findings to BP, the company ignored them. On top of that, the drillers skipped safety procedures and seemingly misinterpreted some of their most alarming data. Their research and paperwork contained outdated or incorrect information, and it's likely the teams ignored small mechanical problems until they became big ones. In other words, the Deepwater Horizon spill wasn't some unforeseeable fluke. It was preventable. In light of all this, BP pled guilty to their charges. The company was sentenced to five years of probation, during which an ethics monitor would review their paperwork to ensure they were operating sustainably. They also had to pay fines totaling $4 billion. At least initially, that was just their first lawsuit. By April 2011, they'd settled, lost, or not contested half a million claims. And more kept rolling in, especially as new studies revealed more ways the spill had harmed the Gulf. BP paid about $3 billion to people in the tourism industry who'd lost revenue. $2.5 billion went to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation for coastal repair. An additional $5 billion helped the state of Louisiana with ecological programs, and even more cash settled medical lawsuits from people who developed health problems after oil exposure. In 2020, reports said they'd spent over $69 billion between lawsuits and voluntary donations. Additional suits were still pending at that time. About those voluntary donations, BP committed a mere half a million to environmental research. Let's not give them too much credit. That sum was a drop in the bucket for the multi-billion dollar corporation. Plus, after an ecological disaster like this one, they needed the good press. Which they got. The BP cash has been instrumental in funding studies into the oil spills fallout. And some of their payouts went toward funding the Restore Act. This is a program that's designed to help the Gulf of Mexico recover from the spill. The act funded the construction of artificial coral reefs for fish to inhabit. The legislation also offered assistance for other hurt or sick animals, like beached whales, dolphins, or turtles. 
Even if they aren't directly suffering from the Deepwater Horizon disaster, the Restore Act can still ensure resources are available to help them. All of this BP money has helped create new jobs, which in turn played a role in the region's financial recovery. Perhaps more importantly, major laws were passed in the wake of the disaster. Certain tests are now required when companies drill new wells. But unfortunately, there isn't much oversight. And sadly, oil production has only grown in the past decade. In 2022, the industry reported record-breaking profits, and BP was no exception. So even if we did a complete crackdown on safety protocols, the odds of another disaster have still increased. And if it's another unprecedented event, we might not know how to fix it either. In fact, some experts think it's not a question of if there will be another spill, but when and where. On average, every year, hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil leak from tankers, drills, and processing factories. These accidents might seem like a drop in the bucket compared to the scope of the Deepwater Horizon, but our oceans can't afford continual spills. Especially when minor accidents keep happening. The year before Deepwater Horizon, there were 39 oil rig fires or explosions in just five months. That averages out to almost two a week. But many people don't know about those incidents. They were small enough that they simply weren't newsworthy. And that hasn't changed in the past decade. In 2022 alone, there were spills in Kansas from the Keystone Pipeline and in Peru, Gibraltar, and Washington State. We won't blame you if this is the first you've heard of them. As you can see, these disasters happen all over the world. Even developed nations like the United States can struggle to resolve them. Look how long it took to respond to the Deepwater Horizon incident. Now think how much worse a similar scenario could be in the developing world, where technology isn't so readily available. Plus, the risks of more disasters could go up because we're drilling in riskier places. Oil companies are running out of shallow, easily accessible deposits. A 2010 report, released shortly after the Deepwater Horizon spill, highlighted that corporations have been drilling deeper, taking greater risks. Those deeper wells require complex machinery with many potential failure points. Add the fact that corporations don't have a lot of experience with these sorts of challenges. No one does. It makes it more or less inevitable that accidents will happen. BP promised they'd try to transition away from oil and toward green energy. But they rolled back those green initiatives in February 2023. Gas was just too profitable. So they keep drilling and will for the foreseeable future, which means disasters keep happening. And they impact some of us more than others. Oil facilities tend to be constructed in low-income neighborhoods or in communities of color, so they bear the brunt of the fallout. One region in Louisiana has been dubbed Cancer Alley. The air there is heavy with carcinogenic air pollution. The predominantly POC residents are significantly more likely to be diagnosed with cancer than the general population. 
environmental problems caused by the fossil fuel industry are clearly tied to other social issues, like racial discrimination and income inequality. Justice, environmentalism, human health, they're all connected. And the Earth's oceans, maybe the planet's most precious resource, are also deeply threatened. They'll continue to be, so long as we rely on fossil fuels to power our society. So maybe our goal shouldn't be to make deep water drilling safer. Perhaps we have to find a whole different form of energy altogether. That might sound like something out of a utopian fantasy, but several innovators are paving the way for truly green power. It could be the key to a safer future, not just for humanity, but for the planet as a whole. We'll look at their work next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Green, Earth Crimes and Conspiracies, brought to you by Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. And check out our other shows like Unsolved Murders, Solved Murders, and Serial Killers. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify every Tuesday. If you'd like to learn more and take action on the climate, visit www.spotify.com slash darkgreenresources. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ali Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Ben Hanani and Alex Garland, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Kotovich, with recording and sound design by Alex Button. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Richard Rossner. Thank you.